you say one of the key secrets to success is patience. And patience definitely doesn't just mean doing something and waiting. It means never giving up, you know, like having that tenacity to, to figure it out. Yeah, it can look like stubbornness from, <laughs> from the outside sometimes, but... Hey, what's going on? This is The Doug Show, and welcome to part two of the Keyword Golden Ratio. And that intro was me talking with my friend Dom Wells from Human Proof Designs and the Human Proof Podcast. Now, if you haven't listened to the previous episode, which is the Keyword Golden Ratio part one, you should definitely listen to the previous episode to put this episode in context. So, I have to thank my friend Dom for letting me rebroadcast this baby. He interviewed me a while back, and we did a two-part series. First part was primarily around the KGR, as we call the keyword golden ratio for short, and uh, sort of the details around the formula, finding keywords, and that sort of thing. This episode, part two, is mainly around executing after you found all these keywords. So we talk about content, we talk about my team of hiring, uh, you know, freelance writers, how I do that. And by the way, you can get all the templates that I use for uh, hiring people, actually writing the content, the materials and information that I provide to the freelancers so they know, you know, what I need them to do. So you can get a hold of all that if you go to nichesiteproject.com, there's a green button, click it. Enter your name and email address, and then I'll send you an email with a link to all the good stuff that we're talking about. So I'm going to send it over to Dom here in a second. But quick note, there is not going to be a Q&A section at the end of this episode. It will be uh, the next episode because there were so many questions. So let's send it to the interview. Yeah, Doug, what's like the first thing you do when you've got this data or what are you considering as you're researching the actual keywords in terms of turning them into content? Okay, good question. I have a small team of writers that I sort of work with like on an ad hoc basis, but let's just sort of consider it for like an individual. And then maybe we could talk about the team like later since it does add a little more complexity. So on the most basic level, you know, what we have at this point is a list of keywords. And they're usually, you know, not just words, but they're actually phrases like the example we've been working with, you know, through the last episode was best water bottles for yoga. So we can sort of, you know, think about that. Maybe there's several iterations, you know, best water bottles for, uh, you know, hot yoga and, you know, I don't do yoga, so maybe that's, I shouldn't have used that example, but we'll just keep going with it. So essentially we have a list of keywords and at that point, I'll just give you some like raw specs on what I'm sort of looking for. So I have a template of, and we'll also assume that these are affiliate, you know, sort of review based, non-informational posts. So these are affiliate based reviews. So essentially I have uh, like a template, I call it the you know, perfect Amazon review format. And, you know, we can share that in the show notes and you could get that for free and sort of, you know, a short guide that I use to help write that. And it's really sort of modular. It's pretty easy to write these types of reviews. 
and I will write a 600 to 1,000 word post for each of the keywords. So let's say we found 10 keywords, that output will be 10 articles. So any questions so far, Doc? Uh, yeah, I guess, I mean, it all makes sense. But if you found keywords which were particularly similar, like mm-hmm. let's go with your yoga example. I'm just as ignorant as you are about yoga. But <laughs> if you found like best water bottle for yoga or best yoga pants for men, best yoga pants for women, for example, sure. would you group the kind of four men and the four women keywords together or would that still be two separate articles? Okay. Awesome question. This is sort of counterintuitive, but I don't group them. So I'll publish them separately. And we could talk about the consequences of that in a second and what to do about it, but I publish them separately. So like I said, 10 keywords, you get 10 different articles as the output. Okay. That certainly makes it easier. Yeah. And actually, because I I know some of the questions that you might ask, so I'll tell you about what might happen, and then you could ask questions as we go. Sound good? Let's do it. All right. So, Dom, you're probably thinking to yourself, what about keyword cannibalization? Um, And if you're not familiar with the term, that means like you're sort of taking uh, search results from your own site, right? So your example is yoga pants for men and yoga pants for women. Let's say for some reason that the yoga pants for men article is ranking for both of the search terms yoga pants for women and the search term yoga pants for men. So a little wordy, but essentially the wrong page is ranking, right? So that is a real risk and it can't happen. And actually it does happen. It happens um, some percentage of the time. It's less than you would think, but more than you would hope. (laughs) So what you do, right, or what I do is um, I'll publish the articles all separately. So 10 articles are out there and then I'll wait. I'll wait for like a month or six weeks and see what Google does. And if, for example, my men's article is ranking for terms that I don't want it to rank for, maybe I'll go and adjust some of the headings, the subheadings, so the H2 and H3 content on the article that is not ranking to maybe make it a little bit stronger as far as the keyword that I'm trying to rank it for. Maybe I'll add some interlinks within the site using anchor text that can help it rank for the term in which I hope it to rank for and see what happens. You know, I'll go to the Google search console, fetch that particular page to, you know, re-index it and then wait another, you know, week or two weeks. I'm not in a rush in any case here and see what Google does at the end of the day, right? It still may be the case that Google is ranking the page that you are not trying to rank or sorry, ranking a term for which a page that I think I'm talking myself in circles here, Don, but the thing is Google is still ranking the wrong page. So what you can do actually, before I go on, do you want to clarify that at all since I talked myself into a circle? Yeah, I mean, it's very clear for me because I've had these experiences as well. I'll give another example which might help explain it to anyone who's listening and scratching their head. So I had a website which was about darts and 
one post targeted best soft tip darts and one post targeted best steel tip darts. And to me, it made sense to do them as separate posts. But what happened was best soft tip darts ranked page one for the search term best soft tip darts. And it also ranked page one for the search term best steel tip darts. And this was very frustrating because, first of all, it only ranked like position nine and it wasn't going to rank higher because it wasn't quite optimized for steel tip. It was optimized for soft tip. And in fact, it was a miracle it got that high in the first place. And I didn't, so it wasn't going to get any higher. And also it probably wasn't going to convert because if anyone clicked on that article, they'd be like, but this is about soft tips. I wanted steel tips. So yeah, it's quite a frustrating thing. And I've seen it happen quite a few times. And I've done some of those things you mentioned. Like I try to go through that soft tip article and think, where is the word steel in this article? Like I'm going to remove (laughs) this word. And then I might do some more internal linking to the steel tip one. I might make the steel tip one more optimized, maybe add 500 words to it. And sometimes that's enough. And Google kind of, you know, it catches on. It's, it's a machine. Sometimes it takes time to figure it out. And sometimes, yeah, like you say, it just doesn't. And you, you're just kind of stuck there thinking, well, maybe I'm not going to rank for that keyword. So I'm, I'm curious. You kind of seem like you're leading into saying something else that you can do. <laughs> I, yeah. So one day it hit me, why fight with Google? <laughs> Which seems so obvious now in hindsight. But I thought, well, if Google's telling me it's going to rank that page for the term that's not even optimized, maybe I know, I'd never even mention <laughs> the word on there, like the steel tip dart example that you gave. And um, I just moved the content over. So I created a new section on the page. So in you know your example, you know, I would have moved the steel tip content over to the soft tip content, create a new section in there maybe add a new intro so that people know that they're in the right place and they can skip ahead to, you know, the section that they're interested in. And then I would simply 301 redirect the old article in which I moved the content from and then redirect it to, you know, the new page. So if I did any link building of any kind or any sort of other, you know, just ranking signals, they would point to the page, which is now consolidated and, it seems to work all right. You know, at that point, that page is actually optimized in some way for that term that Google was ranking it for, though you weren't intending on ranking it for that term. Okay, cool. Yeah, I've done that once or twice. And I did the 301 as well, because I thought, you know, don't want to, I mean, this article is not ranking anyway, but I don't want to kind of risk hurting the, the other article. So it's just cleaner to 301. And I think I saw it work once or twice, but then I saw it not work once or twice. So, you know, like you say, like you never know what Google's going to do. But I can can certainly see why you would want to do that because now the page is optimized and it's like if it got to the bottom of page one without being optimized, now you optimize it, it's probably going to skyrocket to the top. Plus your visitors are actually going to find the information (laughs) they want, which at the end of the day is, you know, the whole point of the site. So... Why then, I can probably tell what the answer is going to be, but for the benefit of the audience, why would you then not just put those two articles as one article from the very beginning? So my thought is, well, you know what, that approach would be valid too. However, if you publish the content with keywords combined into one post and it's stuck at 
say, you know, position six or something. Uh-huh. In my opinion, it's more work to have to move it out. And then you're not really like you have no proof that that was the reason holding it back. So as I say it out loud, I realized that one, you could say that in the other direction as well. And I, you know, I could argue that same point in the opposition of me. But, you know, for this exercise of, you know, KGR content, it worked pretty well. And then once I moved the content over, you know, after I tried to re-optimize, you know, the post that wasn't ranking as well as it should have, I move it over and then 301 redirect it and then I don't worry about it anymore. Okay, yeah. I guess like you never know when Google's going to do this. So if you start out with all your content, all your keywords on separate articles, you're kind of diversifying a bit more and increasing your chances as well. Like if you have all 10 keywords on one article and for whatever reason Google doesn't like that article, then that's 10 keywords you might not rank for. But if you spread it out, then you know, you, you only need to be successful with 50% and that's five keywords that you're ranking for. So yes. there's that element as well. Yes. And to be fair, I have not actually tried it the, you know, the other way where you sort of group the content together. And I, I'm involved in some other sites as well. And they have that sort of content model where it's super long content. And typically for me, those are going to be the keywords that have those larger search volumes. So, you know, I definitely have a spread of content in these particular, you know, KGR content. These are the, you know, the shorter versions and, you know, I'm splitting them up. It's very granular overall. Yeah. So that's an interesting point as well. I guess like it depends on what kind of keyword you're doing like if you're targeting a 4,000 word monthly search keyword and you're going to write this like 5,000 word post because you really want to you know make it like this kind of pillar content on your website maybe with that one it would make sense to put all the other iterations and kind of LSI keywords all on the same article but when you're doing your these kind of low-hanging fruit KGR keywords it makes sense to kind of just it's like you're throwing the seeds and seeing what's growing. So I can follow the logic into doing it that way. I think it's a lot easier to organize your thoughts as well. Like sometimes I've done keyword research and I found 50 keywords and I think these could all quite conceivably be 50 posts, but they could also be 20 posts or they could also be one post or they could also be three posts. And I just I spent three hours thinking, okay, I'm going to make these ones one post and then wait, where does that (laughs) one fit into it? And uh, I think you kind of get this paralysis by analysis thing, you know, where you're just so uncertain about the best way to organize it. And you never know until you actually publish the content anyway. So I like the idea of just get the keywords and turn them all into posts. Yep. And for me, you know, the way I sort of like, built the, you know, my ad hoc team, you know, they're all freelancers. I don't have anyone on staff like full time or anything like that. But, you know, working with individual articles and, you know, smaller pieces of work sort of made it easier to have this ad hoc system where I could say, add more editors and writers pretty quickly without having to rely on them for a 10,000 word post and other content and everything associated with that versus a thousand word where it's like a pretty small segment. So it sort of 
a little it's a little risk management since you know sometimes writers or freelancers in general disappear and don't do the work that you originally hired them for so yeah i mean we have about 50 60 different writers on our payroll so i, I totally feel those pains and it's definitely a lot easier to find people that can write 600 words decent content than it is to find someone who can write like 4000 word keystone yeah so that's kind of a good point as well in that maybe you don't have to do things the best way and maybe there isn't even a best way to do it on google but as long as you're actually able to do it then you know you're going to get results like your results speak for themselves maybe how you did it isn't the best way to do it but if your site earned you 15000 then you can you know you, you get the right to say you don't care <laughs> right thanks yeah i think that's a key point right so like i sort of you know organized this in the way that was easiest for me but you know if you're looking at this and you think Doug's an idiot for doing certain things a certain way. Definitely test it, you know, like try it how it makes most the most sense to you. And maybe, you know, grouping the content in a more logical way can be helpful, right? Maybe, you know, maybe you silo this content. So you have some pages and sub pages like child pages on your WordPress, you know, I guess installation, I don't know the right word, but you're using pages and sub pages and you're using like a pretty tight silo type structure and architecture. Now I'll tell you that takes more time to manage and you have to think about things ahead of time. But you know, if you structure it in that way, then you have tons of relevancy, like all built in and you know, maybe that makes more sense to you. So you give that a try. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, something I find myself telling people over and over again is just test it and see what works. I mean, I've had my results and I don't know whether I've tried building sites a certain way and not seen a modicum of success with that. And then someone else says that's the only way to do it. And then I've had success doing it my way. You've had success doing it your way. So the one lesson people need to learn is just try it and see if it works for you and find what does work for you. And I think even in your article that we mentioned, you say one of the key secrets to success is patience. And patience definitely doesn't just mean doing something and waiting. It means never giving up, you know, like having that tenacity to, to figure it out. Yeah, it can look like stubbornness from <laughs> from the outside sometimes. But, you know, if you're taking the information and feedback that you are getting and adapting what you're doing then, you know, you should be able to work out, you know, the system that works for you. And, you know, I'm sure if people try this and it doesn't quite work, you know, how I describe it, I'm sure there's a tweak they can make and, you know, maybe it'll work better for them. But in my, you know, specific data points, it seems to be working pretty well. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, so the last point on this before we, we jump back into more of the kind of practicalities of the content. I think there are many different case studies out there. And like you said in the previous episode, sometimes the person has had this success because they've been around a while and they've managed to succeed with it. But I think also there are some people who they just did something once and it's almost like they caught lightning in a bottle. Like they teach this method. And I think either you're not being 100% truthful about what you did or you got really, really lucky and no one else is going to be able to kind of recreate this. But <laughs> what we're talking about is definitely not that. So 
you know, I'm just going to say to people, yeah, maybe you won't get 100% of the results that Doug got. Maybe you'll get better. Maybe you'll get 40%. But, like, the theory is sound and it makes sense. So just do it and see what happens. So anyway, let's go back into the content. So you kind of get stuff that's like 600 words or 1,000 words. How do you... Like, do you have a publishing schedule or do you just publish it as it comes out? Or like, you know, you mentioned earlier, you don't launch a site with 50 articles. So what do you kind sure. of follow? So in this particular case, you know, the site, you know, had been around for a little while, I think about a year or so, if I recall, when I started publishing it. So essentially, I was publishing it as fast as I could. And I'll go ahead and describe my team a little bit, but just to give you an idea of the publishing of it, I would publish, you know, five to 20 articles all at once. So I was batching (laughs) all of my publishing in one day. So I know that some people will say, you really should publish things once a week, and you should space it out, it proves consistency. I've never, I don't know if there's any like data to back that up. But I just published everything as soon as I could, as fast as I could, because I knew that those posts would get traffic right away. <laughs> so there was no reason for me to hold it. And there were no ill effects. And it's been, you know, five, six months. So I think should be okay. My team was sort of, I started small. So I started with one writer. And then I hired another writer once I you know, had the training process down and I was happy with the work from the first writer. And then I would hire you know, a couple more. I had maybe about four writers working for me. At one point, I wanted to stop doing the editing and sort of the formatting and kind of the setup inside WordPress for each post. So I asked one of my writers if she wanted to do you know, a, little, a little more high-end work come on hourly instead of, you know, fixed bid for her articles. And she did. So I, you know, again, I had to train her to do editing in WordPress and learn how to use WordPress. She never used it before. And that worked out great. She's still working for me right now, in fact. So she's, you know, US based, I pay between eight and $10 an hour for the content manager slash editor. And she takes care of, you know, actually editing of the grammar. She makes sure that the content is in the voice of the site. She'll grab pictures from like Flickr Creative Commons. She'll add some calls to action. She'll add links to Amazon. She'll add a YouTube video and then draft everything for me. So it's just in in draft mode and I can go in to WordPress, check out the drafts. It usually takes me about three to four minutes to look over an article and, you know, make sure it looks okay make sure the links are going where they're supposed to. And then I just hit publish. So like I said, I would just go into my dashboard and publish as many things as I could. Okay. Lots of food for thought there. Yeah. I mean, I've heard that too about it's better to be consistent and you know like it's better to publish three posts a week for six weeks than it is to publish everything all at once and then do nothing for five weeks and it makes sense but I've never seen any evidence of that maybe it used to be the case or maybe it only works better with a new site or with an established site I don't know but like I'm, I'm the same as you like I'll just publish them as soon as they're ready because I I hate logging into WordPress and publishing them. So I'll be like, okay, let's just get this over with. Yeah. And also, yeah, because Google's going to find some posts after an hour and it's going to find some posts after a week. 
and they're all going to take different times to kind of marinate in Google. So, you know, just start the clock like as soon as you yep. can. You know, just thinking about it, I wonder if that's sort of an artifact from, you know, people giving advice about starting a blog where, you know, really it's important to be consistent and not give up. And then it's important to, you know, sort of commit to publish once per week or something. But you and I are building, at least in this case, we're building affiliate sites to do a specific thing. And, you know, that sort of consistency doesn't matter. So I wonder if it's just an artifact of like, you know, advice to bloggers. Yeah, it could be, or it could be from the days before there was more of a notable sandbox. Right. It could be from the days when authorship was a thing, you know. So it's sound advice, so I'm not going to kind of destroy it too much, but I feel like it maybe actually isn't 100% applicable to this kind of website. Yep. So something you touched upon then, you have someone edit your content and everything. So I assume, you, do you worry too much about making everything look pretty and amazing with like Thrive themes or anything, or, or is it just not this type of content, you just want it to be well formatted and have links and then let it do its thing. Yeah, well formatted. And, you know, there are, you know, calls to action, you know, hey, check out this specific item on Amazon. But, you know, I, (laughs) I don't have a flair for design or anything like that. But the site looks clean. And, you know, that's kind of my approach these days is less is more. You just want to, you know, let the user and visitor be able to read the content as far as like making it pretty and using you know thrive or other sort of visual editors i don't do that it would take more time but i don't know that it would actually bring more revenue in the ultimate goal of course now that said i haven't done you know cro the conversion rate optimization and I'm just starting to learn about that actually for niche sites. And I mean, when it comes down to it, you would have to do like A-B testing and check if, you know, a pretty format actually boosts conversions or not. A lot of times, you know, things that you would test in an A-B test don't actually change much. And it other things do. And you just never know which one it is. So overall, I'm not doing anything fancy. It's pretty much straight up, you know, WordPress post. The other thing with like Thrive is I feel it is, I use Thrive, especially for like sales pages and stuff, but it slows down my pages. So I've definitely ripped it off of pages because after I check the load time and then remove Thrive content builder from, you know, a particular page and then check the load time, it was so dramatic that I started taking Thrive off everywhere except where I have to have. Yeah, that's interesting. I found that Thrive... It's an amazing plugin, but it is quite bloated in some ways. Um, like the fact that you have to upload the plugin via FTP a lot of the time or cPanel. Yeah. But actually, if it, all the images inside Thrive were optimized, the file size would only be about eight megabytes because we optimized it once because my web developer <laughs> got so frustrated with having to do it every time. He just optimized it. But then, of course, Thrive updated the plugin like a week later. So, yeah. My kind of philosophy with using Thrive is I'm not going to mess around with stuff like that until the article's ranking and maybe it's in position one and or, you know, it's getting a lot of traffic and I'm thinking, let me see if I can do CRO. But I'm certainly not going to do that in the beginning 
what I'll normally do is maybe if I find a site is getting like a thousand searches a month and or rather it's getting a thousand visitors a month and maybe it's only making a bit of money I might find what normally is the case with a new site is that like 80% of that traffic is all going to one post so then I might go in and see if I can play around with Thrive but when I first publish stuff I'm just gonna hit publish and let it rank and then I'll worry about moving call to actions and stuff like that. Yeah. Because you don't wanna you don't wanna waste ten hours a day for something that might have no result. Exactly. Now I have a question for you, Dom. When you do make those changes, are you using a CRO tool or how are you measuring the impact? Um it depends. Um usually I'm kinda lazy, so what I'll do is if a post is getting like 500 visitors a month and it makes $200, I'll make some changes and it's usually changes with Thrive. So it's quite easy for me to undo those changes later. And if the next month it makes more money, then you know I'll consider it success. But if it only makes $10 more, who knows? Or if it only makes $10 less, who knows? Because, you know, stuff fluctuates. Yep. Usually if I'm testing a specific post, then I will give that post its own tracking ID in Amazon so that I can see, like, I know exactly which page made which sales. Right. But I found with my shaving site, by just changing three pages, I went from $50 a month to $500 a month almost <laughs> almost overnight and it only took me about two hours really yeah because i basically made some boxes like some fancy call to action boxes and then i just copied those boxes to other pages because you can save templates and thrive gotcha but i've done the same thing with another site and not seen any any improvement so that's why i think all right well i'm gonna wait and once I get to a point where I think this site is in a position where I want to try and do CRO, then I'll do it because every site is different, every audience is different, and there are certainly some best practices and some things that you can test first, but um, right. you never know what's going to happen until you test it. Exactly, exactly. And I don't want to digress too much, but I'm working on another another project, actually an even, I guess, more profitable site, and you know, there's actually less content on that site but it's more profitable because of the, you know, the keywords in the niche. But, you know, there's enough traffic on the site where, you know, making the tweaks that you're talking about and actually, you know, pulling out a CRO tool that can do A-B tests where we get, you know, incremental, you know, 1%, you know, maybe the $10 you mentioned was significant in one direction or another. And then, you know, you get the compound effect of like these 1% increases. And like I said, the site's making enough to where these 1% increases are like, you know, can be thousands of dollars each month. Yeah. So you also need to consider like the context. Yep. Yeah. So like with my shaving site, I, I did these tests to the top three pages, which were like the top three in terms of traffic and they were positive. So then I rolled out the same changes to the top 10 posts. Then I added a bunch more posts and did link building and reinvested the new profit I had and then later I noticed I had a different bunch of posts that were in my top 10 because rankings had changed. So I did the uh, same changes to them. Then I started rolling it out to any posts that got more than 200 visits a month. And then over the course of about eight months, the site went from yeah like $500 a month, 2000 in December. So wow. that was just a case of, and I, I think I only added about five extra posts. 
So it was just a case of saying, okay, this works, now I'm going to scale it with the rest. Cool. And you knew because it's the same niche that it should hold up for your site. Yeah, but I see a lot of people that they say, oh, I just like changed all 100 posts on my site and, and I'm hoping I'll see some results. And I just think, you know, just, <laughs> just change the top sort of 70% of traffic and then worry about the other 90 posts. So that's my advice for that. Exactly. And I mean, you know, thinking of 80-20 rule, Pareto's ratio, yeah. you know, I mean, just work on the top few posts. I mean, maybe you just have to do five of them and you get 80% of the results and save yourself, you know, many hours of headache going through making those changes. Yeah, exactly. And then if you're only testing two posts, you get to run a lot more tests as well, because if something doesn't work, you can just try something else um, and then you're going to find what does work. Okay, so where are we at? We know how you use keywords in your content. We know what kind of publishing schedule you do and kind of how you approach CRO and formatting and stuff. You mentioned your editor puts a YouTube video in. Is that every post or do you just kind of throw it in sometimes? Uh, Pretty much every post. If for some reason there's not anything related, we'll skip it. But you know, usually a few images and a YouTube video related to the topic. So that's just for like making your content have more rich media and stuff like that? Yep, exactly. Okay, so how do you track what's working? Do you track every single keyword in a keyword tracking tool? Or Right, yeah, fairly sloppy. <laughs> you know, I'm a little lazy as well. And when you start talking about like the sheer number of, you know, the posts that I was doing... Yeah, the tracking is sloppy. So I track all of the keywords in, I guess it's like serplab.co.uk. Is that, uh-huh. the, is that the tool? So uh, That is one, yeah. Okay. So that, you know, I feel like it's one of the more economical tools. It does the job that I need it to do. I pay for a couple extra bots and it's only, you know, 10 bucks a month or something. So I can track hundreds of keywords and it's no, no problem. So I'll, you know, take a look and... You know, at this point, I can just see like little fluctuations. You know, sometimes a particular page or term will go up or down just a bit. But at this point, you know, most all of these are like ranking in the top 10 somewhere. And I could track it that way. Additionally, you know, at the end of the day, right, the rankings are important, but even more important is the revenue. (laughs) So, what I did at the very beginning, this whole project was created a a tracking ID just for these KGR terms, right? So I have a tracking ID that it's used only in KGR compliant posts. That way I could easily see that I'd have to do some math, but it's roughly like 40% of the revenue is from KGR posts with no backlinks to them. And then about 60% is, you know, sort of like the bigger, more competitive keywords. So in short, like the tracking I do is SERP Lab just to you know make sure these particular pages debut. I could do a little bit of analysis to make sure the pages are ranking for the terms in which I want them to rank. And then the real important thing is to use a tracking ID. For my, my method is to use a tracking ID to make sure that these KGR compliant posts are actually making money, which they are. Right, yeah, because obviously 200 posts is going to cost you a few thousand dollars, so you want to make sure it's worth it. Exactly. 
So I, I expect if somebody did this with a brand new site, it would probably be even higher than 40% for the first maybe six to 10 months. Maybe something like 80% of their income would come from the KGR posts. Yeah, actually, I never even thought of you know that shift, but you're exactly right. I mean, that's like the huge benefit of the KGR is like you don't need the links. Your site doesn't need as much authority. The sandbox is, you know, shorter or non-existent for these type terms because it's just not as competitive. And you're literally one of the, you know, one of 250 or less, you know, results on the internet that are targeting it. So yeah, you're exactly right, Dom. I mean, if you launch a site and this is the majority of your content, like most of your revenue is going to come from these pages. Yeah, I seem to remember there was a lady who did the Niche Pursuits podcast a while ago. I think it was about two years ago. And she, Mm -hmm. I think she built sites purely this way. Like she didn't do any backlinking. She looked for all these kind of low-hanging fruit keywords and she made a significant income. So I expect, you know, you could do it with just KGR posts and you could still make money. Although... I think the kind of the hybrid way that you talked about in the previous episode is probably the best, in my opinion. It does. Um, well, thanks. I think it's the best too. But I guess it gives you the most flexibility, right? So you have room to grow over time if you want to. You know, some people are are going to be happy with a site that makes you know five hundred bucks a month, and they can do it with you know, no link building essentially. And then, you know, they don't have to do much. If it's not a competitive set of keywords, then, you know, that should hold true moving into the future and it should remain non-competitive or it'll be very gradual. And then they want to get into it a little bit more and like build some backlinks and however they want to do that is up to them. But, you know, they could grow their site into, you know, full-time income essentially using the hybrid model. So that gives me a Another question. Um, There are some niches where obviously they're so competitive that you're not really going to be able to target the more kind of traditional keywords. Like, for example, let's say drones or something like virtual reality headsets. That's probably, I haven't done keyword research for them, but I know how popular they are that I probably wouldn't try to rank for best drones or something like that. So if you found a niche where there weren't these kind of, there wasn't really an entry point for these more traditional keywords, but there were still a whole bunch of KGR keywords. Would you still consider or would you still recommend to someone that it was worth entering? Or you know, do you like to see that there is at least some sort of low competition keyword in the higher search volume? Sure. That interesting question. I would probably advise them to stay away. So, you know, it, it depends on their level of experience, but, you know, imagining sort of a beginner, I would probably say, you know, just stay out of the competitive stuff because it's only a matter of time before the, you know, the high competition or your competition for those highly competitive niches, they're going to come around and they're going to start publishing like content that will rank for KGR type terms. And they'll have so much authority that there's not much that you can do with it. But I try to stay away from like highly competitive just niches in general. Yeah, that's a good point. And I guess there's always another niche that's less competitive. So why, you know, why fall in love with a competitive niche when you can find something else? Right. The only, you know, maybe exception is if someone 
is really passionate about the topic and you know that would serve as an unfair advantage in some ways you know perhaps they actually have many of the products that could take original pictures of and they can shoot videos and they can you know really do a nice job with knowledgeable content you know that would make a difference but if it's just an arbitrary niche that they you know think could be profitable and they're doing it more for money than anything else then you know find something less competitive that'll be easier to deal with so yeah that makes perfect sense yeah so like when you're just doing a kind of affiliate site like an Amazon site and you may you, you maybe want to have three or four sites and you don't care so much about the niche and you're not producing the content yourself it makes sense to stay away from these big authority niches yep exactly okay so last thing then I don't think we need to do a third episode just for this when it comes to link building you mentioned your very white hat do you just I mean like how do you approach link building to these sites very methodically so I typically just do guest posting and I have a couple templates. I think I mentioned it in the last episode, but I have like a lot of free goodies that may be helpful. And if you would go, if any of the visitors want these templates, or sorry, any of the listeners want the templates, you could head over to nichesiteproject.com slash humanproof. And, you know, it'll be free. There's KGR information as well. And essentially, I sort of break down the process into sort of warming up the leads um, in this case and then, you know, emailing people, bloggers in this case, to, you know, ask for a guest post. So it's pretty straightforward, nothing really magical other than, you know, getting down in the weeds. And the way I make contact first is typically, you know, comment on someone's blog maybe a couple times so they actually remember that, you know, I contacted them and like read their blog and that's really important you know if you want to get a high percentage of you know responses back it's much easier to do if they kind of know your name already Um, another trick that i use is you know you sign up for their email list and if you do that you could actually reply back to one of the emails and you know people often are going to reply back to that, even if you're asking them for something. But, you know, it's just an approach where you build a relationship with a blogger. So that works really well. And then, you know, doing the guest post, I utilize the same sort of writing team where I can have people write the guest post for me. And then I put in links to whatever I'm trying to rank. Yeah, so pretty straightforward, nothing unusual. Yeah, so... Do you usually try and link to just the homepage or do you try and link to some of your bigger money pages? What kind of anchor text are you thinking about? Sure. I almost never link to the homepage. I link to the specific articles that I'm trying to rank. And typically I'll use like partial match and sort of long phrase anchor text in general. And, you know, more or less... If it's a really good site, I may use exact match anchor text and, you know, see how it plays out. But I'm fairly conservative on the anchor text and it'll be keyword rich, but, you know, usually a long phrase. Yeah, I was just interested to get your opinion, but that's pretty much exactly how I approach guest posting. And when I teach my customers how to do guest posting, I teach them like those same two techniques. Like I'll say comment on their blogs 
you know you can even use a spreadsheet to track who you've commented on and whether they replied to your comment and then reach out for a guest post and I even said yeah you can sign up and reply to their email that's exactly how I kind of did outreach with human proof designs actually like I all of us internet marketers, most of us have this ask me anything email that we send out as an autoresponder. <laughs> and so I just replied to that on various different ones. I probably replied to yours. <laughs> and yeah, like some people didn't reply. Some people replied and it never went anywhere. And some people, I became really good friends with them. Uh, Stuart Walker from Niche Hacks, for example, we exchanged a lot of emails and he sent me a ton of traffic over the years and it was all because I replied to his ask me anything email. So that yep. is definitely um, something that I teach too. So that's really cool. And yeah, when it comes to anchor text, I usually try and squeeze a link to the home page and a link to an inner page in a guest post. Some people might say you can only link to your home page, but yep. yeah, when it comes to anchor text, I, I try and avoid exact match for guest posts because if I'm guest posting, I want to keep it as white hat as possible. And I think using an exact match in a guest post is bordering on gray hat anyway. So, yep. um, yeah, but basically what you described is exactly what I do as well. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes generic anchor text is appropriate too, where, you know, check out this post, that yeah, sort of exactly, thing. Yeah. And just, I mean, that's what real bloggers do. So sometimes, you know, you vary it up depending on how big the campaign is and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, even if I'm doing something more like grey hat, like web 2.0s or sometimes PBNs or something, I'll still not use exact match because I think Penguin's much more likely to penalise you for over-optimising quality links than it is for under-optimising spammy links, if you know what I mean. Yep, yep. And, you know, it's, I guess, one other thing to add around like guest posting is you should look for you know different footprints to find blogs to guest post on than what a lot of people mention. So if you go to the you know the big guides on like Quick Sprout or Backlinko, for example, they will tell you and advise you to look for write for us or contributor type pages. Mm-hmm. But I never do that. I usually find like those are pretty crowded channels. Sometimes the sites aren't that great because they you know, have so many people contributing that, you know, are doing link building. So I usually go to, you know, less crowded channels. So I'll literally just try and find blogs that are, you know, in the niche in general, or sort of like a related niche and go from there. So, I mean, if you're looking at the yoga example, you know, maybe you go to fitness blogs to build relationships there versus trying to find something where there's tons of people trying to guest post, lots of, you know, internet marketers trying to get backlinks and searching for right for us pages. Those are just so crowded. And, you know, those most of the time I find those are not as high quality as, you know, a blogger that maybe they never allow guest post on their site, but you know, you can be the person, you know, after building a relationship and proving that you're a good writer that, you know, you'll be able to guest post on their site. And I've literally had that happen before. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I didn't allow guest posts on my site until I allowed my first guest post. So, (laughs) and the person who asked to guest post, I don't even know who they were, but like it just came from relationship building. And I probably said, hey, why don't you guest post for me? You know, and I don't think I've ever wrote 
written, I guess, post for many sites that have a write for us category because, yeah, it's just all done from, like you say, being in the in the weeds and yep. in the trenches and just being building relationships with your niche. Have you had much success with outsourcing the actual relationship building aspect? A little bit, not on a large scale. So, you know, at one point I had a guest posting service where I would, you know, do this for clients. And what happened, this is a little, you know, inside baseball, like what happened essentially is working on multiple campaigns becomes pretty complicated. So I wore out my my team (laughs) just to be you know, transparent, but essentially, you know, it was too much and it was a little hard. Once they start trying to work on three or four campaigns, it's a lot of emails going out and it's something that I haven't quite mastered yet. However, I am looking to do that. You know, I'm actually working on another case study with the goal of changing a gray hat site that uses PBNs over to a white hat site all the while, you know, increasing earnings and hopefully selling it for over half a million dollars. So it's a huge project. And for that, I am trying to develop, you know, a system that is more scalable because, you know, it's tough to actually get good guest posts. And to be honest with you, while there are services out there, a lot of times it's hard to know what they're really doing on the other side. You know, I've definitely seen people say that they're offering services in the, in reality, you know, they just have a PBN that looks kind of nice and they have a network of sites that they're working with. So, you know, it's, that's always the big risk with outsourcing your SEO is like trust. Yeah. I remember there are, you know, not naming any names, but there are at least two services I can think of that offer white hat link building. And I'm wondering if they are just putting guest posts on premium PBNs. And I remember, certainly for the prices they charge as well, like I remember when I saw the prices of your service, it wasn't cheap. And I remember thinking, well, okay, that makes sense because I wouldn't do this work for less than that. So often you can see someone charging $5 for white hat outreach and you just think, okay, you know, (laughs) if you want to spend $5 to get your site penalized, go ahead. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. Well, and I mean, it's a lot of work and it takes some time, but in a lot of ways, you know, looking at building out a niche site, it's more about the patience, like we mentioned before, and the stamina. So, I mean, even if you only get one guest post per week, if you do that for a few months, that is way more links than your competition has. And, you know, it'll actually scare off new competitors if they take a look at your backlinks and they see they're all guest posts. That's kind of a, uh, a sign that you've put in time and you're probably not going anywhere in the short term. So, you know, it's a compound effect. That's a very good point. And also just to kind of close this section, if you've got a large portion of your site is these links that are these KGR articles, not links, um, these KGR articles that don't need links, every Mm -hmm. link you build is going to benefit all of them. So if you've got like 200 posts and you build 10 links to your homepage or to, you know, one of your main pages, all 200 posts are going to have their rankings increased as a side effect of those links. I've seen it happen all the time with my sites. So it's well worth just building some links because you, you know that even if your target page is going to take a year to rank, every link is going to 
benefit your entire site. So it's like a really good overall strategy. And I'm, I'm actually quite excited to start a few sites this way after talking to you. Ah, cool. Yeah, let me know how it goes. Yeah, I definitely will. Okay, so closing thoughts. Is there anything you think that you should mention about this kind of KGR strategy that we haven't covered yet? Basically, give it a try, right? So most people that hear me talk about it tell me that it won't work. And that's cool. I'm glad they're not even, you know, they're not even going to be a competition for me. But you know, give it a try. I haven't heard anyone say that they've gone through the process and that it didn't work. So I can, you know, the more data points we have, the better, you know, just something you have to give it a shot and see how it goes. I'll also mention that it is a little confusing to get your head around. So if you do head over to nichesiteproject.com slash human proof, There'll be a link for the video and, you know, associated templates that can be helpful as you're getting started with the KGR and or guest posting and that sort of thing. All right. Awesome. It's interesting that some people said it wouldn't work because my experience, I mean, I agree, you're not going to know it works until you try it. But my own experience was like, oh, yeah, I can see that working. So that's, I guess there are some people that just like to um, you know, <laughs> criticize everything that they didn't think of themselves. Yeah, I think it yeah, I think it's more that where you know, it's easy to, you know, criticize something and uh be critical. But, you know, I just say try it. Give it a shot. You'll be surprised. All right, brilliant. Last question then. Do you think there is any potential for a tool to exist or be created that can do this kind of research? Yes. So, actually a few of my readers have developed some tools. So some people just put it into a spreadsheet. I've seen it in a Google sheet where it sort of partially automates it. Unfortunately, the, you're still going to have a CAPTCHA that comes up because of this search. Yeah, of course. So, you know, it's an advanced search term. So Google does sort of like keep an eye on that. They don't want bots, you know, doing it. So that's one aspect that it was pretty easy for the person to develop. The other, I use a Mac actually, but one of my other readers developed like a Windows app that did a lot more of it. And I'm not sure how much they automated for the CAPTCHA, but it was a pretty robust tool in that they could, you know, load in a whole bunch of keywords and then, you know, get data, the KGR stat on it, as well as other information. I think they may have even linked it to like the export of long tail pro data so they had like kc numbers and other information and it was really a nice format but like i said i use a mac and i wasn't gonna you know mess with trying to you know get that tool to work on my machine but i think that there is you know there's something to it i think if there was a tool it would probably become a little less effective in that you know there'll be more competition for those types of keywords but as long as the CAPTCHA is in there, it really th makes everything go slower, which is a benefit in this case because it reduces competition because yeah, it's more work. That's true. Maybe it's better to just uh, not create at all so that only the people who can be bothered to actually do the work can really benefit from it. Exactly. All right. Thanks again to Dom Wells and the Human Proof podcast. I will put links to the podcast and to his blog as well. And uh, definitely check it out. Dom's a great guy. And so all the 
all the crew, all the crew over there at Human Proof Designs. As I mentioned before earlier in the episode, no Q&A today. I thought we'll just uh, save those questions for a pure Q&A episode. So that is coming up next in episode seven. And I'll quickly mention that we have some really cool interviews coming up with digital nomads. There's a very interesting intersection between like digital nomads, affiliate marketers, and I guess people that don't like their job, which is most people, especially if you have a corporate job and you're thinking, hey, I want to travel more. It's one of those like uh, super common things that people want to do. They generally want to travel more, see the world and that sort of thing. And the digital nomad, I guess, movement really embodies that desire. So if you're interested in that sort of stuff, you definitely wanted to uh, subscribe and keep an eye out for that. If this was your first episode, awesome, glad to have you. Please do uh, subscribe and it would be awesome if you took a few minutes to rate and review on iTunes or whatever you're using to uh, listen to this podcast would be fantastic. Really appreciate it. They tell me that it really helps. You know what? I don't know what it helps with some kind of rankings or something like that on iTunes, but you know what? I have no clue, but it helps other people see that you enjoy the podcast. And if you do, I would appreciate it if you left a review. friends about the show maybe you're having a drink at a bar or something like that and someone's like hey what do you do and then you try to explain it and they don't know what you're talking about so send them to my podcast that would be fantastic or maybe you have uh, some childhood friends you haven't talked to in a while you're stalking uh, maybe an ex on facebook or something like that let her know let him know about this doug show really appreciate it and we'll catch you next time